This is Eric Velasco, and you're listening to the Velasco Podcast. Let's get started. All right, Paul, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. Um, to get us started, can you tell us about where you're from, um, your education, a little bit about your background? Yeah, so um, uh, from central Illinois, I kind of claim dual citizenship between Champaign-Urbana and uh, a small satellite town west of Champaign called Monticello. Um, so I went to high school in Monticello um, and moved back to Monticello. So Champaign and Monticello, um, education. Um, I had started out as a psychology major. Um, I knew that I wanted to work with people um, and help people. I didn't exactly have a feel for what at what capacity or what that might look like. But uh, psychology was um, really interesting to me. And I definitely didn't have a lens at that time uh, for social justice. Um, so it was actually um, the, I feel like lack is, is maybe too strong of a word but that missing social justice component that just isn't necessarily there in psychology. Um, that as I did start to develop that lens for social justice or interest in social justice, um, that's where social work became more appealing. Um, plus the, the overlap of, I was really interested in psychology and sociology. And it seemed from a academic standpoint that, um, there, the, the, the two forms didn't necessarily play nice together in, in academia. Uh, and it seemed like, at least as, as a college freshman, looking at, uh, so, at uh, excuse me, social work, um, hearing that, well, in our discipline, we take the best from everything. You know, we'll pull from anthropology, we'll pull from psychology, whatever we need to help the client. Mm -hmm. So um, that's how I uh, kind of stumbled my way into social work. Yeah, a lot of people I talked about, it's been the same. They start out in psychology and then been like, this is not, they're missing that, like you said, they're missing that social justice or that one-on-one -on -one interaction with people. And that's why they switch to social work. And that's why I switched to social work too. I started off in psychology as well. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's so funny to hear you say that, um, or more so to say that here that you have the same experience. Um, I feel like there's this cultural perception of psychology, like, um, I don't know, like, like they are on the front lines of helping people. Um, and it's, it's ironic because I guess now that we're in the school of social work, we see it's like, oh no, like it's actually people like caseworkers, social workers that are really doing that nitty gritty. Exactly, yeah. But there's just sort of, it seems like uh, psychology has, uh, I don't know, um, they get more academic credit for their discipline and for their field where social work is just, uh, you're, you're a practice, not a discipline. So you, you sort of talked about this 
when you're talking about the transition from psychology to social work, but is there something um, that led you in the direction of wanting to help people? Um, yeah, so I can say that, you know, there was something and I really should uh, sit down and maybe reflect on uh, what the earlier seed of wanting to help people was, um, even before I was uh, going to college. Mm -hmm. um, but I knew once I'd returned to college. Uh, so I was in the military, I got out of the military, worked on oil rigs, and then the railroad. Um, the railroad that I worked for, they had a furlough. Um, so I decided to go back to school. Um, and I immediately just, you know, I knew I wanted to help people. Um, I absolutely, um, I didn't used to be the person that I currently am. Um, I definitely had uh, a lot of isms within me. Um, I was basically like a good old boy um, that you would picture from a small town, um, particularly that you know, goes into the military, um, hangs out with his other small town friends and drive our trucks. Um, I definitely trafficked uh, like homophobia, xenophobia, racism. Um, you know, those things are just so present um, in a lot of uh, gun clubs for, for lack of a better term you know, on athletic teams in the military um, and blue collar jobs, like uh, working on oil rigs in the railroad. Um, and uh, I can say that part of that shift for me, um, I would say, and this is kind of personal, but, um, Part of it was, so my wife and I, we have, we have two little boys, but we actually had lost our first child um, about, uh, right about the beginning of my wife's uh, third trimester. And um, I definitely look at that experience as a moment that humbled me. Um, shortly after that, my grandfather had died as well, um, like within a few months. Um, and my, that grand, the loss of my grandfather was uh, significant because both my parents had passed when I was young. So I was raised by my grandparents. So um, the loss of our first child, uh, my grandfather's death, these happened. Um, you either people hear about it or other family posts about it um, and it finds its way into social media. Um, and I had people reach out to me um, that, it, if nothing else, they were, they were acquaintances and we had just been friends for so long that they remained on my friends list. Um, I had people reach out to me that uh, were trans. Um, I had people that reached out to me, uh, non-white friends reach out to me like directly in my inbox and essentially um, I had, it was, I looked to that moment as, uh, I had become like mentally and emotionally exhausted withholding compassion from people, 
Mm. Um, particularly when I didn't have necessarily a reason to. And having people with these identities that I was withholding compassion from reach out to me uh, during that time and just say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry about uh, what's happened, thinking about you. Um, that really just kind of like broke me. Um, and it, and sort of like in a cliche way, yes, like it, it really kind of uh, reinforced that life is very short and there's a lot of petty things uh, or even just flat out ignorant things that uh, you can waste your, your faculties and energy and time on and it's not worth it. Um, mm. so I point to that as that opened the door of moving myself um, towards uh, building my social justice lens that uh, moved me over to social work. You know, and go, going off of, you know, talking about social justice um, with everything that we have seen happen around the country and around the world, um, what, is, what has been your res response in your community towards the Black Lives Matter movement and more specifically everything that happened after the murder of George Floyd? Yeah, so um, I will say so. Um, in my hometown, there is, I was the co-organizer of a demonstration in my hometown um, of Monticello. And the other co-organizer, uh, her name's Ellie Carpenter, and she's actually an LAS senior um, at U of I, um, also a Monticello grad. Um, she had been toying around with the idea of, um, hey, what, is there any interest for us to do something, um, anything in Monticello? And we had a mutual friend that brought us together. Um, he said, he's like, oh, you, you've, uh, you, you should really talk to Paul Sabin, um, not to pat myself on the back. <laughs> um, and yeah, so there was a lot of uh, tough guy talk on the internet um, as we started to uh, get that together uh, to build that uh, what would be demonstration. Um, immediately, uh, before we did anything, we approached the law enforcement because um, Monticello, like according to the last census, Monticello is I believe 97.35% white when I graduated, my graduating class was 100% white and our school was 99.9% .9 white. And that only percentage that's ever off is um, when we had foreign exchange students. Mm. So in this for context, so um, about a month ago, um, there was, uh, quote unquote, looting at the mall in Champaign. Um, then Monday, right after that, and it was falsely attributed to the local Black Lives Matter 
um, chapter. Um, anyone can put something on social media, call it, you know, this is for the Black Lives Matter movement. And people unfortunately showed up. Um, or, you know, fortunately, I don't want to um, at the same time with my white face uh, say that like there's no place for for that type of behavior. Um, it's just more jarring when it's where you live, you know? Mm, yeah. So with that fresh in the community's mind, um, we reached out to law enforcement because we just felt like we'd rather be completely transparent. Um, there was a lot of already rumors before we even approached law enforcement online that uh, we were busing people into Monticello uh, to loot and uh, destroy the town. Um, so we, we definitely just took the posture of we want to be completely transparent. Um, we want law enforcement to be a part of what we were doing instead of reacting to what we were doing. Um, as soon as we met with law enforcement, then we, we announced, we created an event on social media. And I mean, we're not this popular, I promise. <laughs> Neither one of us are this popular, but that week we were because within minutes, um, we already had uh, uh, a, a group formalized, like a, a formalized Facebook group that were vowing to be uh, armed civilian counter protests. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they had, of course, sort of like when you, uh, when you think of everyone that went to state capitals to, uh, um, to protest why they couldn't get haircuts. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and their flak jackets with, uh, magazine pouches and uh, uh i mean just looking like cosplayers uh the wannabe uh military service members um that was sort of like the iconography of, of the screenshots that they had on their page um we thought like it would be it would behoove us to just let law enforcement know it's like hey um just let you know this is the response we're getting they apparently already knew um and within like a day, uh, all the pages, uh, they, they changed their pictures to like uh, pictures of uh, white families um, oh, wow. with a dog. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Um, so um, yeah, but moving on from that, because I, they're not the focus. Um, we absolutely wanted to try to address this within Monticello. Like we know, um, like I know a good majority of the people that are uh, with city police and I know the majority, a good majority of uh, the deputies with the Pike County Sheriff's Office in Monticello. Um, we know the football coach, like these are the people, it's small. Um, a lot of people stay within Monticello. You know, we wanted to take what is otherwise a contentious Thanksgiving conversation and bring it out into the street. Um, because there's still like a, that dominant conservative narrative and at least in Monticello um, of, I don't know, uh, 
people need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Um, you know, you say Black Lives Matter. I and by all means, like yes, some people are saying all lives matter, but they would respond to it with uh, Blue Lives Matter. Um, like that. That is the prevailing. Um, or I should say that was the most vocal narrative. But we also had a lot of people um, that we knew that, for lack of a better term, um, were part of the resistance in, in Monticello. And, you know, we thought, like, if nothing else, um, this will be uh, an icebreaker uh, for moving forward. Um, you know, and we wanted to be very intentional that yes, George Floyd was the catalyst for why we were meeting, but we wanted to be uh, very intentional that we were there to demonstrate for the deaths of all black lives. Um, at the time, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor uh, were on the tips of people's tongues. Yep. But, um, Nobody was talking about Tony McDade. Um, nobody was talking about any uh, trans black individuals. Um, and that's something, um, this is outside of your question, but that's something that I've, I've taken issue with the School of Social Work. Um, you know, we, we have a town hall meeting and the school releases uh, a message right after it, um, right after we've had the town hall meeting where we've said, um, Yes, Black Lives Matter is the focus right now, but let's not forget, like this is Pride Month. Um, right. And trans black individuals are routinely killed um, without anyone caring and without any justice ever really kind of being, no, the drum of justice is never banged for them. Uh, you know, so that's something that, you know, still, you know, the, a statement was released right after we had our town hall, the school social work. And it only contained uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and possibly Ahmaud Arbery. You know, even even like during the protests, we saw black people being killed, um, yeah. or people start talking about stuff that happened before, like Elijah McClain, and stuff that yeah that people is sort of like, oh, once okay, I'll go to a protest and then I'll stop talking about it or we'll cover it on the news for two weeks and then stop talking about it or you know like you said like you're talking about a school social work or other schools that put out a statement but then don't really do anything after that sure yeah absolutely well and there i mean and there's two things there that uh stick out to me that i want to speak to um like one just most the last thing you said about the school social work um, you know, and I say this from a place of love for the school and the people in the school, um, but it is also from that place because of the love and compassion um, that I feel that I have to be not critical, but critique. Like yeah. I can't let you go without critique. So uh, like of the schools that at, the, at UIUC, first of all, no school should be getting this wrong. Um, but the ones who absolutely should not be getting it wrong are like GWS and social work. Yeah. Like, um, oh, you know, we're not representing or we're not making sure. And especially of like, it's pride month. Like, 
for any sexual and gender minorities that are in the school uh, through all three levels, bachelor through PhD, do they feel represented when they read that statement? Um, and it's not just, uh, you know, black trans individuals. We know that um, indigenous women are routinely killed and nobody does anything about it. Um, we know that this is an issue with the Latinx population. I mean, basically everyone that is not white in America um, and is uh, not cishet presenting. Uh, that's, that's besides the, the, the second point that I wanted to address of, of what you said is, um, it can come across as, uh, disingenuous, of uh, you know, if you have a protest, um, and then you just go home and you do nothing, or you, you see something on the news and then it's gone, it's passed, it's over. Uh, um, we had no idea what the next step after the demonstration was, but we, we went into the demonstration. And again, um, this entire process, uh, we had no idea what we were doing. Uh, myself nor Ellie had ever organized anything. Um, so we were in absolutely building the plane as we flew. Mm -hmm. uh, but we were um, intentional about uh, whatever came from that protest, um, we were going to create something as a follow-up to that, to keep interest, to keep dialogue, and to try to transition or translate that fervor from the demonstration into behavior. Um, we'll find out if uh, succeeding at that. Um, we've done uh, a very white thing um, both Ellie and I are white. Um, we started a book club. Yeah, it's, uh, feel free to laugh. Um, we have one of, and I should say, so um, from our demonstration, uh, we have started an organization, a community organization. It's called uh, Sages in Solidarity. Um, Sages is the high school mascot of Monticello. Um, so that's what we went with. Um, the, I would say board of directors, and that's a very generous term of making us sound more official than we are. Um, are Ellie and I, the, the organizers of the demonstration and also, um, she may be the only black woman in, in Monticello. Um, but if not, you could probably count them on your hand. Uh, she was a speaker at our uh, demonstration and she absolutely wanted uh, to be a part of uh, what comes next. With that, you know, we've tried to address that, yes, uh, a book club is a very white thing to do, but we can go beyond that. Uh, we've called it conversation and demonstration as in it, it can't just be, well, let's meet and talk and, and discuss how it made us feel. It's, but let's also go over um, actionable steps of uh, how can we take what we're reading about or what it's stirring up in us um, and apply it and operationalize it in our lives to uh, combat 
racism, microaggressions, implicit bias, all of that. Um, uh, and again, um, you know what, we, this may not be the right way to go about it. Um, I absolutely am, am willing to admit that um, I'm not always going to get it right. I, I don't think you're gonna ever gonna come up with a perfect answer. Just the next question I have, I think for some people, the answer is very clear, but maybe for some it's not. What's the importance of, you know, having a Black Lives Matter protest in a predominantly white community? Yeah, yeah. And um, so no matter what you do, you're going to be criticized for it. Um, and you're going to be criticized by the people that don't want to see it in the first place. Right. Um, so it's hard. Um, Monticello, we were the second small town in central Illinois to have a protest. And then right after that, it was like, boom, 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 boom. Um, so like in hindsight, they're all kind of lumped together and it feels like, oh, that's cute. You did what every other small town was doing. Um, and uh, you, you know, you riled up all your uh, white, well-meaning liberals and they did their thing and uh, they could post about it on Snapchat and Instagram and all that. And like, I, uh, I'm, I'm part of the resistance. Yeah, like, um, we definitely wanted to counter that narrative. Um, you know, that's the thing of being a white person doing this work, being, having all the identities of uh, the unearned privileges that I have. Um, it's very easy to fall into like a white savior complex. Um, and we wanted to do the best we can to make sure this wasn't a performative uh, uh, gesture, a performative event. And to speak directly to the question that you're asking of like, why is it important to do a Black Lives Matter protest in an all white community. Um, largely because we're the problem, you know? Um, and I don't know, you know, if, if it, I always look for ways, I try. Um, I try to uh, look for ways that I can spend my privilege. And I know, um, especially, um, Coming from Monticello, you know, I was high school athlete. Uh, it's not in here, but some small towns, Monticello being one of them. Um, if one of your residents leaves town, joins the military, they put your name on a, on a sign, you know, right at the edge of town with American flag. My name was up there, you know, so Marine veteran, um, I had a, my identities in that town um, gave me um, a social currency that I could spend. And it, it gave, with that currency, it, I could say things in circles that uh, a black or brown person could not say. Um, and even if it was to arrest the attention of the town, 
and say like, okay, we've got six, 700 people on the square. Now you're gonna listen to us talk about white supremacy. Uh, you're gonna listen to us talk about the unjustified killings of black bodies uh, and state sanctioned violence. Um, if nothing else, because it, we viewed it as hopefully as we were planning it as an opportunity to, uh, to bring the conversation to people that, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, like to bring the conversation into Trump country. And it's like, we get it that, uh, you know, maybe, you know, we'll say, not an older gen, because I hate to say that uh, older people just skew conservative. Um, but we get that there's parents in this community that uh, will say blue lives matter and all lives matter and all of this and uh, consume way too much Fox News. Um, but their children don't necessarily uh, retain all of that. Right. And that was that was actually um, one thing that we pointed out is uh, Monticello and Muhammad um, and a lot of these other, uh, you know, you've got Tolono, St. Joe. Um, they're all white flight towns. We have to be honest about that. They're white flight towns. Um, as Champaign-Urbana uh, started to get more black and brown bodies, you know, uh, we are like a little microcosm of what happened in bigger cities. So, um, but all these towns, Muhammad, Monticello, St. Joe, they love to tout, um, this is a great place to raise a family. Um, and usually after that, they'll say something like, we've got great schools. Um, but one of the things that, um, and I addressed it at the demonstration is, um, Inherent when you say this is a great place to raise a family, like you mean um, that they are going to have character development. They're gonna have gain some type of values. Um, but at some point that child will not be a child anymore and they will go into the world, um, whether it's uh, a college campus, a workspace environment or the military, whatever. Um, they're gonna go somewhere where it's not 97.35% white. And they're gonna, they're gonna collaborate with other people. Um, and it's time that we start having these conversations of what the lived experiences of those, listeners probably couldn't see this, but my air quotes of what those other people, the lived experience of those other people are like. Um, and um, I don't know, it's to, again, circle back to your question, why is it important? My mind goes back to this story about Malcolm X all of the time. There was a young woman who approached Malcolm X, um, a young white woman. Uh, I said, I love what you're doing. Is there any way I can help? And he said, no, you can't help at all. There's nothing we need from you. And there was a reporter uh, somehow knew about this story or it was just brought up and uh, years down the road um, and he was asked about it and he said uh, you know I wish I had done it differently or 
can't remember if he said that exactly, but he said, I wish I would have told her, yes, you can help. You can help by going back and talking to your white friends, going talking to your family. I can try to go have this conversation with the people that, you know, I called my community. And I could try to do that simple, but very intimidating thing for white people of talking to their friends, family, and community members about, you know, why aren't you holding our elected officials accountable? You know, why are you sharing this Fox News? Uh, why are you retweeting the president? talked about you know people saying in response all lives matter all lives matter specifically in regards to people saying all lives matter why do you think people are so quick in going that direction of saying all lives matter is it because they're uneducated on the on the phrase black lives matter and what it actually means or is it uh, racism yeah you know and that's a i mean for like the question at large of what you know why did why is that the knee-jerk reaction that is a great question um is it uh you know not being educated is it racism uh yes yes to everything um and to be fair like i've tried to set a rule for myself of um addressing impact not intent um, especially uh, when I'm ch trying to address someone and trying to like engage them in dialogue. Um, I feel like the easiest thing, uh, particularly if you are left-leaning a little bit, like it's so um, enticing to just try to dunk on conservatives, you know, but it's like harder to actually just try to like engage them and maybe mm -hmm. do like the like the Socratic method of like that's interesting. Why why do you say X? Um, and that's and that's a really painful process too. Um, so, but yeah, why? So the, when I say um, I try to address impact. Uh, not intentions, because I feel like one, that's setting up a uh, low hanging fruit for the person that says all lives matter. Um, if I say like, oh, well, you're being racist. Like, I feel like that's a really good way of just shutting them down to dialogue. Um, if, I, if I'm really trying to at least open them up to dialogue, um, at the very least of saying like, you know, addressing the behavior as racist or, you know, the statement as racist. While they, they may sell us, may very well be racist, um, I don't think there's one answer. You know, I think a lot of people uh, are answering from a place that really bought into we are a post-racial America. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a very real reality for them you know, and to say it's like, well, look how far we've come, you know, we don't have Jim Crow laws anymore. Um, 
and it's, uh, I think it was Stokely Carmichael um, who said it's, it, that's the equivalent of having someone's foot on your neck, or in this case, you know, uh, George Floyd, a knee on your neck and them letting up a little bit and saying, it's like, well, it's not as bad as it used to be. It's like, it shouldn't be there at all. Right. Like, just because it's better, like that does, um, that doesn't remedy the problem. Um, so, you know, I think there's people, yeah, um, that think, uh, yes, it, they, they think it's a, a, a post-racial America. And I think that they are also falling into that trap of um, equality not equity. It's like, yes, like equality, that, that is like maybe like the century down the road goal, but we can't get to equality before we address equity. Um, and it's like, I, I get it. Like, yes, everyone should be treated the same, but before we get that, we have to treat people different for a while for a long way, and I don't know if we'll ever need to stop, but because we've systematically uh, treated people differently to disadvantage them, especially uh, the same people, um, we need to bring in equity to fix that before we can start. It's like, no, we're all treated the same. But um, yeah, that's actually like a little pet peeve of mine. Like I, I, I get a little, uh, a little butt hurt that nobody wants to talk about blue lives matter because I like I personally find that more offensive. I I feel like uh, all lives matter can come from without coming across condescending. I feel like the statement all lives matter can come from like a blissfully ignorant place. Yeah, yeah. I've I've, I've that's interesting. I've noticed like personally, I haven't seen a lot of people, you know, in the current situation we're in saying i've seen people say all lives matter more than blue lives matter but yeah i mean like people 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 haven't really talked about oh what does blue lives matter what is what is that saying back to someone that's saying black lives matter what does that mean because that you're right it's definitely worse than saying all lives matter or what's even worse is saying oh white lives matter yeah, well, and like, that's the thing. And it's like, well, in one, you saying that you've heard all lives matter more than blue lives matter. That That is an interesting case study of like, oh, our social circles are very different. Uh, yeah. Like as far as like, <laughs> when I scroll through my timeline, um, it's like, okay. Uh, that that, that uh, sense of like, oh yes, there are two Americas and it's alive and well. Um, but absolutely, like, um, like that all lives matter comes from like that very, like the people that want to sanitize, unknowingly sanitize Dr. Martin Luther King and trot his memory out there for, for equality. I, I get how they regurgitate. Well, all lives matter. We should all just get along. Um, but it, when when the knee-jerk reaction is blue lives matter like that is a certain form of tribalism of um curling up and coddling up to power of uh you need to obey the law 
um, and if you just obeyed the law, this wouldn't have happened to you, which is a statement I've heard numerous times. And um, one thing that should be reiterated over and over again is even if this person, whoever X person is, was guilty, it is not the it is not law enforcement's job to kill them. They still are entitled to due process. Um, but even when there's no crime, Brianna Taylor was sleeping in her bed. Not a crime. Um, so, uh, yeah, but like that, um, that notion of, of trotting blue lives matter out, um, you know, I know this is not something that needs to be explained to you or likely most of your listeners, but, um, a blue life is not a thing. Yeah. It's an occupation. What I've heard, you know, police officers can, once they go home, they can take their uniform off. And if you see someone on the street without their uniform, you, you, you'll have no idea that they're a police officer. Mm-hmm. But for someone who is black, Other than a bad that's... <laughs> but someone who is black, that that's yeah part of... That's, I mean, they can't change that. That, yeah. I think, I think that's, that's, that's the biggest thing. Right. Well, and that's also the thing of, uh, I think it was Michael Che. It, it was, it was a comedian. Um, and this came out like, I feel like a couple of, like at least two years ago. And he's like, Black Lives Matter is like, that is like, that's our starting point of negotiation. Like, just matter, not, yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, um, in the fact that yeah, they 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 just have to matter. That's <laughs> period. That's yeah, period. Yeah, period. Um, but you know, and that I feel like, you know, just to draw this back to the absurdity of blue lives matter. Um, you know, I feel like this is something that should be illustrated because I feel like within social work circles, this isn't talked about enough. Um. It, Blue Lives Matter, I feel, is a knee-jerk reaction for people that have a love for power and feel that other people should have at least, not a love might be a strong word, but at least like a deep reverence for it, you know? Um, and that is a deep, uh, for me, that is a great illustration of people that understand power over, not power with. Um, that, that point of relational cultural theory of, you know, power over is a very hierarchical system uh, that erects binaries. Um, power with is much more radical um, and is interdependent. Um, and, you know, when you hear things like, uh, yeah, blue lives matter if, you know, if you weren't breaking the law, there was nothing, but that, that's very, um, it, it strikes the chord of you have fully internalized that power over. How have, I mean, your kids are, are younger. Um, have you had the chance to, I know your, your oldest is four, right? Yeah, just turned four. Yep, two days ago. Um, have you been able to 
talk to him about what's been going on or, or later on when he's able to understand what's going on? How do you plan on talking to him about, to both of your kids about what's happening? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and I guarantee that'll look pretty similar to the demonstration of, yeah, we're, uh, I'm just building this airplane as I fly it. Um, parenthood is, uh, parenthood is another thing that will humble you. Um, and especially if, you know, you're trying to tackle some of these things. Um, I don't, so, um, yeah, like if your listeners are interested, uh, uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi's How to Be Anti-Racist, there is a children's book. There's a children's version of it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and uh, we saw it, picked it up. And not to say, like, I can just uh, uh, delegate that work to a children's book. That's obviously not enough. Um, but yeah, like, we, uh, I try to pick on, like, the little things of, um, so, like, so, for example, our oldest, Thatcher, um, he saw like a wedding picture of my wife and I uh, on the mantle. And his, you know, he says, that's mommy. Mommy looks like a princess. Um, my wife is white. Um, she's in a wedding dress. But um, I, I get like the fear in me. It's like, oh God, like, and this was a few weeks ago. So I'm thinking like, oh God, our three-year-old has already internalized this Eurocentric version of beauty. You know, this Eurocentric standard of beauty. Um, so even like simple things of like, we have, you know, these children's books, like there's, you know, some other woman, uh, a non-white woman that happens to be a dress. I was like, that's your, that's a princess. Um, like just like those little things to start to at least, um, offer a counter narrative to things that are just already in the water for him. Um, you know, uh, this has been something that has been an ongoing dialogue between my wife and I. Um, I, I don't let police toys in, in the house and that's not to be anti-law enforcement, but um, it, it naturally evolves into uh, playing good guys and bad guys, mm. you know, um, and as a parent, and I've actually had this conversation with uh, other parents that have children the exact same age, then it, like, it's mortifying to, to see uh, your little ones start to make handguns and saying, I mean, things that are greatly imaginative and uh, very creative, uh, but nonetheless, like they start to play out like, we're going to throw you in jail and you're a bad guy. Um, and then, and then you're, and then you're wondering who do they, who do they picture yep. as, as a bad guy? Yeah. Yeah. And especially, and that's a great segue even into like, Oh, like even not even tackling racism, but tackling colorism. So yeah. Um, you know, I would love to tell you that we have like this uh, agenda of how we want to address these things with the kids, but um, I, I would like to say like we try to address it like organically, 
uh, like, you know, like when it comes up, um, there, there's about, but so much you can do with a three-year-old, now four-year-old and a, and a one-year-old uh, talking to them about these things. But yeah, like how we plan to address it, like moving forward, um, you know, when, when they're older is, you know, teach, say the, the words of racism, racist, uh, at early ages, uh, that these are not pejorative words, they're, they're descriptive words, you know, um, and that's, while yes, they do get slung around uh, sometimes uh, in a pejorative way when you're just wanting to dunk on someone, but um, no, this, like, racist is not the new R word, um, you know, we want to normalize these things. So to sort of um, bring us to, to an end, it's, it's a big question, so you can, a brief, a brief answer. Um, what should social workers be doing right now? Ooh, yeah, uh, you weren't lying when saying that's a big <laughs> question and it's pretty wide open. Um, one of the first things that comes to my mind uh, probably because I've been beating the drum of it on social media is foremost, like start with where you're at and what you're comfortable with. Um, now, I fully invite people to criticize me or critique me for that because I do agree that um, most good work can't be done from a place of comfort. Mm. Um, and I fully, in, I, people that wanna bring that to me and to that statement, um, I accept it and it's worthy criticism. Um, I, I would offer that uh, if you don't start there, if you if you try to uh, outkick your coverage or do something that you're you're not necessarily comfortable with, um, just from personal experience, I feel it'll come across as inauthentic. Um, so, like, for, start with with where you're at, with what's comfortable. Um, but then move up, you know, it can't stop there. And that's going to look different for different people. Um, um, you know, as I've said on uh, social media, uh, most recently, you know, it, if you're on the sidelines for the conversation of race, consider becoming an ally. Uh, if you're an ally, become an becoming an accomplice and if you're an accomplice move and push yourself to become a co-conspirator um and the activities for all of those things are going to look different for uh each person um but for you know thinking for social workers you know for students um you know be willing to be uh, critical of the material that you're given. Um, I know I've been critical of like even just the vignettes that we receive of potential clients uh, when mm, you're role yeah. playing. And they're very, they almost 
follow the the pattern of uh, of of tropes about races or ethnicities. Um, question that, and not just question, but you know, say like, you know, we can do better. Um, you know, and find ways um, in your community to uh, to get involved. Um, that's going to look different for for everyone uh, where you're at. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a national chapter. It's called Surge, uh, S-U-R-J, showing up for race, racial justice. Uh, there's a, there's actually a, a chapter here in Champaign. I know there's one in New York City, um, but uh, you can look for things like Surge. Uh, they have a social media presence. They have uh closed and open groups because closed groups there's just certain things where you just want to keep trolls out of there um but i mean these are organizations where you can get involved um you can find out about workshops you can find out about uh demonstrations that are being planned um so you can participate in those things um you know the other thing is you know I feel like I'm also uh, answering that question like I'm only talking to white people. Um, there's not just white social workers. Um, you know, what should our non-white social, one, my white self should not be telling uh, what uh, people, non-white people should be doing. But I would like to even just address like here right now, like my mind immediately went to, um, oh, we're talking about white people. Um, people are probably tired of hearing this within the social work community, but do your self care. You know, all our non-white uh, social workers, or even, I mean, you don't even have to not be white, but just like a non-dominant identity, you know, taking into consideration, um, sexual orientation, gender, um, everything that's going on can be very triggering for a lot of other identities. Um, so take care of yourself because uh, this can be vicarious uh, emotional exhaustion. But um, yeah, for, for white social workers, um, go into every situation figuring out um it, is this a scenario where um i have the opportunity to pass the mic or pass the platform for someone else or is this is this a moment where i need to hold on to the mic because if i pass it on to that i you know x person am i tokenizing them or am i uh throwing more emotional labor on their plate and you're not always going to answer that question right and you yeah. just have to be okay with uh um if there's any listeners that that are familiar with the school of social work at uh, uiuc then they're familiar with dr carter black it was very useful for me to hear her say in a meeting um, where the topic was, we were, we were talking about uh, uh, trans day of silence and how to address it as a school. Um, this was before COVID hit. 
and she uh, she was very thoughtful in choosing her words. Um, and uh, you know, she explained that even at her level, there 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 are just going to be people that aren't going to work with her on things. But moreover, um, what stuck with me is she said, um, "I'm not always going to get this right." And to hear her say that gave me the permission. It's like, okay, listen, if she can say that, and if she has the the reflexivity and the wherewithal to say that, then it's like, I, yeah. So that has given me the permission. And I also tell other people, um, use that statement because that not knowing what to do can paralyze you into not doing anything. Mm. And you've just got to also accept if you have like a, a cluster of those dominant identities, you also just have to accept like if you do something and, and let's just say like you just mess up and somebody calls you in on it, you just got to take it and say, you're right. Uh, I need to do better and move on. Yeah, I think yeah, just that going off that last point that you that you brought up is it's okay to be wrong rather than not say anything. Because in that way you can you you learn more about what's going on and can work on, on your values and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. It's like I feel like a, a lot of people who are uh, in this constellation of, of this work or, or just care about social justice. They, um, and particularly for white people, um, there's a lot of timid, timidness there. Of, uh, it's like, well, I've got to get all the language correct uh, before, or I've got to know, like, which is absolutely like, yes, you should be certain, like, hey, you should worry about Am I getting someone's pronouns correct? Am I using an outdated, uh, or shouldn't even call it outdated? Am I using uh, a racist uh, term that it, to describe an ethnicity? Um, yeah, you definitely want to make sure that uh, you should have a, you should have a healthy fear. Um, it's an unhealthy fear when. Uh, it keeps you from doing anything at all. Um, so yeah, it's one of those things. Be scared and do it anyways. Um, yeah, and, and that goes too with, you know, call people out too. Yeah. I think people, sometimes people are scared, especially with family members that may have different values than you do, especially with in terms of Black Lives Matter or in terms of who's in the White House, like call, call them out. Um, cause that, you know, that may be really uncomfortable or, but that's necessary for maybe that won't do anything, but maybe it will. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing of, yeah, in that moment, I, it, I would say it's very rare that someone was like, you know what, somebody called me on something and that very place and time right my mind was changed and I was a different per like yeah it's very uh unlikely 
Um, but often like what happens is like, yeah, you know what, you're probably going to end up uh, uh, ruining Thanksgiving or <laughs> whatever. But what that is, is you are doing the hard and thankless work of planting the seed. Yep. Um, and then the next time that subject comes up, whether it's tomorrow morning watching Fox News uh, or whatever, um, that topic will come up. And whatever you had said, that will also have some real estate in their mind next to what's coming in. And they might, and they'll likely still reject it then and laugh at you for what you said or, you know, scoff this out or the other. Um, but you know more than likely they're forward that every time that topic comes up if if you are a person that is uh, a significant uh, uh, person and and this person's life that uh awkward and painful uh event of calling that person that event will come back up each time and you know, maybe it'll be the slow erosion of, uh, of whatever, um, you know, like I, I can say, you know, for myself, like, um, yeah, you know, I used to be, uh, I was awful. Uh, if, if I was the person I was, um, I totally would have been a Trump supporter. I would not be who I am now. And, um, it, it was a handful of people that had called me out or even people that had called me in. Um, you know, there were people that were worried about like trying to be tactful and say things because they wanted to maintain a relationship. And there were other people that were just like, no, I'm done with you because you act like an asshole. Like um, the accumulation of those things, like even though I wrote those people off or wrote those events off, um, they always would come back up when I would run across a scenario uh, that referenced the things they had called me out on or called me in on. Um, so yeah, I mean, don't expect any pats on the back, uh, but it, it's, it's a lot of thankless um, and you, we don't need as white, speak, speaking as a spokesperson for white people, um, yeah, uh, a joke. Um, yeah, no, we don't need to be thanked for it, but go into it, uh, realizing like if, if you, if you care about racial justice, if you care about bringing about a uh, cultural revolution, um, this is, you're, you're going to endeavor on at times thankless work from people that you care about uh the people that you know are your immediate family uh, not to say that everyone's immediate family are, are racist bigots or, or this side or the other <laughs> but yeah yeah well uh thank you so much for um having this conversation with me i really um just appreciate you bringing your voice in to this conversation um and i hope that we can continue having these types of conversations and for people that are listening to, um, you know, call people out. Um, it may be uncomfortable, but that's important for, um, that can, that like what Paul mentioned, 
planting those those seeds that may not be that right away they change but as time goes on um hopefully they do change and are able to recognize the things that they've said or done in the past um so thank you again paul for for joining me yeah absolutely and um thank you for having me and thank you for uh your thoughtful questions. Um, it can continue to do this great work, um, keeping self-care in mind. Uh, uh, it's really important that uh, these conversations in, are being had and being heard. And uh, I just appreciate you creating a, a platform for this to happen. Thank you so much for the work that you're putting in and making this all happen. Remember to continue to have conversations with your friends, families, and colleagues about what continues to happen around the country and around the world. Having these conversations is necessary for real change to happen. You have listened to the Velasco Podcast. See you next time.